Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Logan. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Logan is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. Philippians chapter 3, and in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you will find that on page 981. As we've been going through Paul's letter to the church at Philippi, uh, we've been seeing what it looks like for us to live our lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And as Paul draws the main body of this letter to a close this morning, he's going to re-emphasize the importance of following the example of people who do that consistently and avoiding the example of people who do not. And so we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we are going to pick up with verse 17. Paul writes, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So over the, the course of chapter 3, Paul has shared his personal experience of how he came to understand and embrace the gospel by, by trading in any notions of self-righteousness and, and receiving the, the perfect righteousness of Jesus as a gift by faith instead. And then how God's grace now motivates him to pursue increasing Christ-likeness and spiritual maturity in his life. As we pick up again here in verse 17, Paul now calls the Philippians to imitate him, right? to, to follow his example of what it looks like to follow Jesus well. Now, you might not pick up on it at first glance, but it's important for us to see the relational component and, and nature of this command. Right? Paul doesn't just say, imitate me. He says, join in imitating me. Right? In other words, this is something that the Philippians, and we by extension, are supposed to do together. Right? As a church, we help one another follow Jesus. And one of the ways that we do that is by following Paul's example together. And so while each one of us has to decide to do this individually, this is not something that we are supposed to do alone. Right? Discipleship is relational and communal by nature, which is just another reason why the local church is so important. Now, in the second half of verse 17, we see that not only are the Philippians to follow Paul's example, but he also commends those who walk according to the example that he and the rest of his team have given. Right? He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As we've seen many times before, the word walk is a metaphor that the Bible uses to describe the way that we live our lives, right? The way that we walk is the way that we live. So Paul is telling the Philippians to look for people who are living out, the, the, already doing the things he's calling them to in this letter, and then to follow their example, to do what they do the way they do it. And so certainly, uh, this would refer to people like Epaphroditus and to Timothy, uh, two men that Paul has already pointed out as good examples back in chapter 2 and who are both on their way to Philippi. Uh, we, we would certainly also expect that this uh, refers to the overseers, right, the pastors of the church at Philippi, and to the deacons as well, which we read about at the very beginning of the letter. 
Right? One of the qualifications for pastors and for deacons is that they be good examples for the rest of the church to follow. This could very well include other people in the church as well. Uh, but whoever it refers to, Paul certainly expects that there are members of the church in Philippi who don't just teach with their words, but who demonstrate with their lives what it looks like to follow Jesus and to live their lives in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. As I was studying this week, it, it occurred to me in a fresh way this week just how important good examples are. And I, I've thought about it, I don't know really how to quantify it, but I'm convinced that, that much, if not most, of who we are is determined not so much by things that we learn on our own, but by the examples that we see from the influential people in our lives. So I, I've stopped counting how many times I say or do something, and then I realize, oh my gosh, I sound just like my mom. Or, or I'm acting exactly like my dad. And maybe I promised myself that I would never do this, but here I go, right? Because this, this is the example uh, that I was given. The dynamic of, of imitation is a big uh, issue in our house right now. Because as Titus continues to grow and develop, so much of what he says and does is based on what he sees his brothers and sister doing. Right? So we've, it, sometimes it's really cute, sometimes it's not amusing at all. And so we've had to have a, a few conversations now with the kids about how important it is that they be good examples because Titus is going to do what he sees them do. And this is just a, a fact of life. The examples that we have exert a powerful influence on us. And that's the way it's supposed to be. God designed it that way. And so it's important that we recognize that and that we work with the grain and find people who are following Jesus faithfully and then imitate what we see them doing, imitating them in our own lives. And starting in verse 18, Paul is going to warn about some people whose example should not be followed. And so we'll pick up again, beginning in verse 18. He writes, For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And so we see, starting in verse 18, that the reason Paul calls the Philippians to imitate godly examples is because of the danger of imitating ungodly examples. Right, he warns that there are many people who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Right, and the cross is a shorthand way of referring to everything that, that Jesus' death on the cross stands for and everything that God accomplished through it. And so in contrast to living in a manner worthy of the gospel, these people are living in a manner that is opposed to or contrary to the gospel. And the exact identity of these people is difficult to know for certain. Paul doesn't give us specifics. But from what we can see in the text, they appear to be professing believers. Right? People who would claim to believe in Jesus, but who lead a life of ongoing, unrepentant sin. And so they, these may be some of the same people that John had to deal with as we went through our study of 1 John. Or they may be the people that James has in mind in his letter when he emphasizes that faith without works is dead. 
And we're talking about people who claim to be Christians, but whose lifestyles clearly demonstrate that they are not. Uh, But because they profess faith in Jesus, they have a potential credibility with the Philippians that Paul clearly does not want them to have. He points out that he has warned about these people before, and he's warning them again now. So we see a number of ways that Paul describes these people in verse 19. First of all, he says that their ultimate destiny is destruction, which is referring to eternal judgment. Now, now typically, we would expect to find the, the final result of people's path to be at the end of a sentence. Right? You might say, these people do this, and they do that, and their end is destruction. But Paul places it at the beginning of the sentence, and in doing so, he is emphasizing this aspect. And so before we say anything else about them, you do not want to follow the example of these people because their path ultimately leads to hell. And having said that, he goes on to describe them more specifically. And so we see secondly, that he says that the God of these people is their belly. Now, that doesn't mean that they literally worship their stomachs, right? The belly represents the the source of cravings and desires that people have and naturally seek to satisfy outside of God's design. And so if, if any of you know someone in our Bible interpretation class right now, you can ask them to explain to you what a metonymy is. Paul is saying that that these people are controlled by their sinful desires, whether it's greed or lust or gluttony or, or whatever it may be. Instead of obeying the Lord, these people obey whatever appetites that they have at a given moment. As a third, we see that Paul also says that these people glory in their shame, which means that they delight in and even celebrate things that they should be ashamed of. Actions and attitudes, behaviors and beliefs that that we might think would be kept hidden and and in private are instead broadcast publicly, proudly for the world to see. This is something that they glory in. Now, if that seems confusing, uh, it's not Uh, hard for us to see this very phenomenon happening in our own world today and within evangelicalism. Some of the the top-selling books right now are are written by Christian leaders who are addressing issues of of gender or sexuality or who are framing the conversation around social justice in ways that clearly deviate from what the scriptures say. It doesn't matter what the Bible says about God's design in the world and his commands for how we live. These people push a worldly, secular view of humanity and are trying to embrace Christians, or trying to persuade Christians to embrace it. And this is why Paul would warn us about them. As the cultural pressure increases for us to compromise on these kinds of issues, we're seeing more and more professing believers do exactly that. And in fact, what I'm seeing more and more of is actually the the idea that people who do embrace these unbiblical ideas and concepts and beliefs, that they are the true Christians. And people who believe the Bible and are trying to follow Jesus are not. And so you'll actually hear people say, you people who believe the Bible are not really Christians. We are. And so it's it's a a strange phenomenon. We've come to the point where the church has to defend itself as the genuine expression of Christianity 
against people who deny what the Bible says and embrace things that the Bible clearly condemns. You have to admit that's a brilliant tactic from a, from a PR standpoint. It's a brilliant maneuver, but as these people wear their support of various forms of depravity as a badge of honor, Paul says they are glorying in their shame. Then finally, and, and probably summarizing each of these other characteristics, Paul says that these people's minds are set on earthly things. In other words, they are consumed with what's happening here and now. They live for the moment. And so back when I was in seminary, I worked at a local high school. And the cool thing for the students to do back then was to do something really stupid and then chalk it up to YOLO. Right? So YOLO, in case you're out of the loop and not as hip and cool as I am, stands for you only live once. Right? And, the, and kind of the idea is that this life is all you've got. So you should do anything and everything that, that you find enjoyable or that brings you pleasure because this is it and there, there are no redos. But, but we know that the Bible tells us that this is not true. This earthly life is not all that there is. In fact, this earthly life is not even a blip on the screen because we have an eternity that never ends to look forward to. But the people that Paul has in mind here are short-sighted. They're not thinking about eternity and the big picture. They're only concerned what makes up this temporary life and pursuing satisfaction in some of the very things that Jesus died to forgive us of and set us free from. And obviously, this is in total opposition to the mindset that Paul is calling the Philippians to have. And so again, given what we see here, it appears that Paul is warning the Philippians against a group of people who would affirm, who would profess to be Christians, and yet who live in opposition to Jesus. And perhaps they taught that because Jesus had forgiven them of their sin, that it didn't matter how they lived anymore. Or maybe they taught that sin was actually good, because the more you sin, the more God's grace and his mercy is magnified in your life. But as we've seen over and over again, a lifestyle of ongoing, unrepentant sin is simply incompatible with a heart that has been regenerated, made new spiritually by the Holy Spirit. Right? Obviously, Christians still sin. Sometimes they sin badly. Right? But the, the reality is that a person who has been made new and is indwelled by the Holy Spirit will eventually come to repentance over their sin as the Lord works in their life over time. So on the one hand, like with the Judaizers that we talked about a few weeks ago, we want to protect against the idea that we have to do certain things or not do other things in order to be accepted by God. Right? The Bible is clear that, that the gospel is that we have nothing to offer God. And by His grace, our salvation is through faith alone, by trusting in what Jesus has done for us through His life, death, and resurrection. Having said that, we also want to, to maintain the balance and protect against the opposite idea, was that just because uh, we are saved by grace through faith alone, that believers can then just run amok in life. Right? We, we know that genuine love for Jesus is expressed through obedience. And so these are complementary truths that Paul is holding together in this letter. Right? Salvation is absolutely by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for us. 
But any so-called faith that doesn't lead to a life of pursuing Jesus is not genuine faith at all. And ultimately, Paul says, leads to destruction. Now, having said all of that, something that I find to be noteworthy in this section is Paul's disposition towards these people. We see in the middle of verse 18 when he characterizes the warning that he is giving about them being with tears. We see that Paul is genuinely concerned and and moved over the state of these people to the point where he weeps over them. He's warning the Philippians. He's going to speak the truth about who they are and the nature of their situation, but he does that with great love. He weeps over them. Usually we tend to treat our enemies with harshness and and hard-heartedness, contempt even, but Paul is broken over these people and their ongoing rebellion against God. You see, when we step back and we keep in mind the fact that, that people who oppose the faith are separated from God and they face an eternity of judgment by Him, it should lead us to hurt for them and to pray for them instead of just seeing them as enemies or instead of just looking forward to the day when they get what's coming to them. So it's worth asking this morning, is is Paul's compassion for the lost reflected in your own life? Or are we so preoccupied with being right that we forget what's really at stake with the gospel? I think that we need to chew on that for a while. Paul's warned the Philippians about the danger that these enemies of the cross pose. Starting in verse 20, he's going to come back around to the glorious future that awaits the faithful. So we'll pick up one last time, beginning in verse 20. He writes, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body, by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So in contrast to these false believers, Paul reminds the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. And that from there they await a Savior who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you may remember from the the introduction to the the series that many of the, the residents of Philippi were Roman citizens. Philippi was a colony which meant that most of the population were citizens. And as such, they had all of the rights and privileges and responsibilities that went along with that. And one of the chief privileges of being a Roman citizen was having the emperor as your savior. Now, the Romans didn't use the title savior in the same way that we use it uh, in the church today. The emperor was seen as the savior of the world in the sense that he was responsible for bringing and maintaining peace on earth. Humanly speaking, the Roman Empire ruled the world, and so he was seen as the chief benefactor of all mankind. But over against this, Paul reminds the Philippians that their ultimate citizenship, their true citizenship, is in heaven. This world is not our true home. We are part of a kingdom that is much larger than any earthly territory. And as citizens of the kingdom, we have the rights and privileges and responsibilities that go along with that. 
And Paul reminds us that we are waiting for the one true Savior, who is Jesus, who is coming back someday to physically establish his kingdom forever. And when he comes on that day, Paul says that he will transform our feeble earthly bodies to be like his resurrected body, so that we will be fit to live with him for eternity in an existence that is simply impossible for us to even begin to comprehend. And Paul reminds us that Jesus is able to subject all things to himself, and one day he will exercise that authority to make all things new for his people. Just as as we sang about a few moments ago, what a day that will be. And, And because of that, here is hope. Here is a source of hope for people who are facing persecution for their faith. For for people who have been stung by the effects of sin and death in this life. For people who are struggling with the messiness of this life and who long for a day when it will all be made right. That day is coming, church. It's coming. As Paul closes this section in chapter 4 and verse 1, we see that it is because of this hope. It is because of this confidence that the Philippians, who Paul deeply loves, should stand firm in the faith. And this last sentence brings the main body of the letter to a close. And so everything that Paul has said from chapter 1, verse 27 to now has been explaining what it looks like for believers to live in a manner worthy of the gospel by standing firm in our faith. And so it's by looking forward to their certain future with Christ that the Philippians, and again we by extension, are called to follow the examples of godly people into spiritual maturity. So in our passage this morning, Paul re-emphasizes the importance of imitating people who consistently set a godly example, and by avoiding the examples of people who do not. As we said a few weeks ago, along this very line, this reminds us that everyone needs someone who is further down the line that they can look to as an example in the faith. And everyone needs to be someone for someone else who's not as far along as they are to be an example to look to. We've seen in chapter 3 that Paul is pursuing Christ's likeness and spiritual maturity, and he wants us to follow his example and the example of other people who do that consistently so that other people can then follow our example. As we talk about this, I have to say I have a suspicion that this is yet another area where it's easy to recognize the truth. It's easy for us to nod our heads to this and say amen, but but again, Paul expects us to actually do this. We know in our heads that it's important to follow good examples and to be godly examples for others, but I want to ask you this morning, are you really taking this seriously? Are you living your life in such a way that somebody could look at you and get a good idea of what it means to follow Jesus well? Not that that we're perfect by any means, but are we consistent? Are you actively looking to find people who are further down the line in following Jesus than you are? And And then looking to follow their example as you seek to grow in your own life? Let me put it to you this way. Don't be the reason that someone stops short of following Jesus as much as they could. Don't be the reason 
that somebody stopped short of following Jesus as much as they could because of your example. Don't, don't be the reason that someone looks at you. Perhaps someone comes to faith or, or a young new believer starts attending our church and, and they're, they're plugged in and they're, they're active and then they see you and they say to themselves, well, well, she's been a Christian way longer than I have been. But I see her over here gossiping about other members of the church. And so rather than learning to use their, their speech in a way that benefits others, they begin joining in on the conversation themselves. Or perhaps they see you and they think, well, well, these people have been Christians way longer than I have, but they don't seem to be particularly committed to the church. Maybe it's not that important after all. And there are any number of ways that this could work itself out. But in your example, don't be the reason that someone stops short of following Jesus as much as they could. I have to say that as a pastor, this is an incredibly challenging passage for me, as I was working through it this week, I had to, to ask myself if I am consistently setting the tone for what it looks like to pursue spiritual maturity for our church. But I want to challenge you also. So Sunday school teachers, are you an example that you would be able to commend to your students and to your class? If you serve as a deacon, then can our members look to you as an example of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Pa uh, parents, do you recognize and understand that the primary influence of your children is yourself? That the single most important influence in your child's spiritual development is you? It's not going to be me. It's not going to be Zach or Angie. It's not going to be their teacher at school or even their friends, as much as we might think that from time to time. Study after study shows that the greatest influence on a child is their parents as they see what they do and then do it themselves. And that being the case, are you setting the example that you want your children to follow in the faith? If you are a member here at Loeb, do you see your responsibility in our text to imitate Paul so that other people can look at you and understand what it looks like to follow Jesus. You see that by God's design, we learn by example. And we can't make disciples of Jesus if we fail to demonstrate how to follow him in our own lives. So this morning, I pray that we will embrace the responsibility to follow Jesus by imitating good examples, and by seeking to be good examples for others as well. Let's pray together.